All right, welcome in, guys. Late Kick is eh, sort of live. It's new, at least. I told you I'm on vacation all this week, so this is sort of kind of pre-recorded, which explains this beautiful, can you smell that natural wood background here in my home studio? But we still got a lot to get to, as promised. Our full and exclusive interview with Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal is coming up. And I want to tell you, if you're like me, sometimes when you hear interview, you think, eh, seen one, seen them all. So you probably skip over it. Even if you're like that, and I know you because sometimes I'm one of you, you're going to want to see this interview. I don't care if you're a Texas Tech fan or an Oklahoma State fan. This interview is going to extend well beyond the parameters of what Oregon fans care about. Now, Oregon fans, you're going to love it and probably watch it 10 times. But I'm going to have Mario Cristobal take us on a really deep dive into a whole lot of specific areas that you just don't get access to very often. Partly, it's because guys don't get asked about this stuff, even though I hear you talk about it. So I know you care about it, and I know I care about it. And the other part is there's normally just not enough time that is allotted. Well, we're going to allot some time tonight to Mario Cristobal, and we're going to not ask him 100 questions. We're going to ask him a few questions and then give him a long time to give us a really peeled back curtain behind the scenes look at the world of college football. That's the way that we like to interview people around here. I'm also gonna, to start the show here, give you sort of a taste, a little something different. This is not typically the way we format our Late Kick live shows on YouTube, but I'm gonna give you a little taste of what our Late Kick Extra podcast is like. If you guys have been listening to that, we upload it every Wednesday, which I guess was yesterday, if you're watching this on Thursday. We upload it every Wednesday. All it is is a mailbag format. It's just a Q&A. It is your questions, and it is me answering as many as I can. So I guess what I'm going to do to start the show here is the way that we normally end these shows and give you a little taste. If you haven't listened to the Late Kick Extra podcast, which is a bonus episode on top of what we do here on YouTube, this is kind of what it's like. So we'll get this started here. Let me pull up a document in front of me. Very informal, very laid back. Let's just get at it here for a couple of minutes, then we'll go to Mario. Uh, Giovanni on YouTube, we're seeing nowadays most successful programs in the country being able to recruit nationally. This is true. I've been ready to talk about this for a little while anyway. Giovanni continues, how much do you think this has to do with some of the traditional powerhouses situated in recruiting hotbeds? I'm also wondering which program, if they were able to return to national prominence, do you think could shift the balance of power in college football the most? Thank you and much love from Europe. How about that? Europe. We've also got a fair amount of viewers in Japan, in Guam. We got them everywhere. So we really appreciate you, whether you're in Nebraska or whether you're in Helsinki, Finland. We really appreciate you watching. So let's talk about this. Why are programs able to recruit nationally? Why does it seem like, and this is backed up by data, this is not just a few kids going somewhere being an anecdotal example. I think here at 24-7 Sports in the last month, I want to say it was Hummer, Chris Hummer, that did um, a really expansive sort of piece on where kids are going now versus where kids were going 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And it shows that state lines do not matter as much to kids anymore. You are much more likely to see a kid. Um, you know, I was talking to, actually, we're going to talk about this with Mario Cristobal. I brought up a kid that I covered when he was in high school. Triquez Bridges. He played in Chambers County at Lynette, Alabama. Very small school most of you have probably never heard of. He committed to Oregon. He was a three or four-star safety, depending on where you looked. I think we had him as a four-star. And he committed to Oregon. And I bring that up because 
15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, certainly, that would have been insane. You probably had never even heard of Oregon if you're going to school in Lynette, Alabama. Think about how smaller the world feels now with the fact that everyone's on TV, every program's on TV every Saturday, and also what, what phones do, just nothing more than a phone, and having access to social media and whatnot. I know that's always the, the giveaway explanation and the cop-out explanation, but I think it is accurate here. It builds a bridge. Technology builds bridges to where what once looked like it was just another world is now, yeah, it's not that far. I mean, hop on a plane, four hours. How many times am I making that trip anyway? So I think that's part one. Part two, and this is the really interesting part of this question to me that Giovanni asked, is which national power out there? If they rose to prominence again, which one of those could have the biggest ripple effect, the biggest impact on the sport? Now, I didn't read what uh, Giovanni put in parentheses, but they said, you know, IE, Michigan, Penn State, Notre Dame. I don't, I, personally, I don't view Michigan as being totally down. I don't view Penn State as being totally down. I don't view Notre Dame as being totally down. I also don't view them in the tier one of college football right now. There are only five programs there. We talked about that Sunday night. But I'm, I'm looking at two programs that have been down, and they're both in the state of Florida. I look at Miami, and I look at Florida State. Now, the part A as to why I pick those is obvious. It's Clemson's party in the ACC, and everyone else just kind of gets their invitation as to when they're supposed to show up and take their beating. So it would be nice to provide some balance to a very lopsided conference right now. But also, think about the state of recruiting in college football. And think about programs, whether it be Ohio State or Clemson or Alabama or any of about 10 other really big programs that have been able to go into South Florida at any given point and take elite players, not three-star caliber players that have good upside, but maybe the big three in Florida didn't have room for. I'm talking about big-time players. And it's been with regularity. You're never going to lock down the state of Florida. But no one's even come close to locking down the state of Florida out of the big three of Miami and Florida State and Florida. And Florida's, Florida's right on the cusp right now, so I'm not even talking about them. I'm talking about FSU and Miami. Twofold would be the impact, is my point, if either one of these programs got their act together. First, you provide some balance or at least competition in the ACC. But secondly, maybe one of those programs capitalizes and latches onto a critical mass of the talent in South Florida that escapes the state right now. So you have an elevator situation of them going up while also collectively programs that have been relying on being able to raid the talent in South Florida. Maybe they're either going down or at the very least, they're having to look elsewhere for the lion's share of their talent. Good question though. Uh, let's go to Twitter. The Twitter DMs always open, even for those who don't follow me, although I mildly to moderately recommend that you do follow me at late kick josh but uh big orange nation on twitter what might this be about what level do you expect jeremy pruitt in tennessee to be at in 2025 well let's ask the question if jeremy pruitt's at tennessee in 2025 that's not hot seat talk that is jeremy pruitt could be really good talk and might there be other job openings that's 2025 though so here's what i think what i think is the next this year, to be honest with you, this year will tell the tale, not in the sense of whether they're going to be a college football playoff contender ever between now and 2025, 
here's what I see with them. What I see with them, to be honest with you, is kind of similar in some ways to what I see Mario Cristobal, ironic though it may be, since we're about to hear from him, at Oregon doing. Follow me here. There's been a pretty radical shift, I think we can all agree, in style of play, offensive style of play in the SEC. And there have been a lot of folks, even Nick Saban, Jeremy Pruitt's former boss, even Nick Saban at Alabama, completely changed the identity and style of their program. And they modernized. It's what I'm waiting on Michigan to do, modernized. Well, what does that mean about Tennessee? Well, I, and we'll see how this pans out, but I get the sense that Jeremy Pruitt got to Tennessee and he's looked around. And when you're building a program, you're trying to identify where you can give yourself the biggest advantage or advantages. And I'm looking at the way he's building his roster. And I'm specifically looking at the kind of running back he's bringing in. And I'm looking at overall how they're building the defense. And I just wonder if he's looked around and he's done a healthy inventory of the current state of the SEC where he has to win. And I wonder if he hasn't looked around and said, well, let's see. 10 years ago, if I would have gotten here, what would have set us apart is doing what, you know, like Chip Kelly and Oregon were doing. Another correlation there. We would have been wide open. We would have been high octane. We would have been four and five wide in a lot of cases. I mean, we would have, we would have thrown the ball a whole lot more and we would have been ultra aggressive RPO game. We would have been up tempo. We would have done a lot of stuff that maybe the majority of the conference wasn't doing. 10 years ago, if I was hired at Tennessee, that's how I could have set us apart. But now everyone has those elements to their offense and every defense has been built or is either being built and adjusting to stop that kind of offense. So if I'm Jeremy Pruitt still speaking in his shoes right now, I wonder as I look around, might it not give us the biggest advantage to kind of install a retro offense here and sort of play and make our hallmark to be the most physical brand and the most physical program that you face year in and year out on the conference schedule. And if I'm also, if I'm Jeremy Pruitt and I'm looking around at defensive personnel, maybe even including mine that I've had to recruit to stop other teams and their offenses, I wonder if I look at the difference in the size at linebacker and look at the difference in the size and maybe the skill and makeup of defensive guys up front and say they are very prone to us bludgeoning them with a power run game. Now, there are inherent risks in that, just as there are with any style of play. But I, and we'll see how it plays out. I really wonder if Jeremy Pruitt hasn't looked around and said, well, uh, the blueprint that I grew up with actually looks like it could work pretty well right now in the SEC. Moving on, Lucas in the email inbox, joshpate706 at gmail.com, by the way. Uh, Lucas asks, what would you say is holding back the ACC to competing with the best? Is it the fan bases? And he's, of course, asking outside of Clemson. Is it the fan bases? Is it facilities? Is it funding or overall lack of deep tradition and history? With that said, which schools would you say have the best shot to lift the ACC to compete with the likes of the SEC and the Big Ten besides Clemson? There we go, in parentheses. Well, I think we just talked about two of them in the previous answer. I think uh, Florida State's definitely there and Miami's definitely there. But let's go down this list right quick before we get to our Mario Cristobal interview. You go down this list right quick, Lucas, and I think you kind of hit on everything. I mean, you said fan bases. Um, there, is, there is not a lack of interest in the ACC. Let me get one thing straight here. When you've watched Virginia Tech 
like when Virginia Tech was a top 10 program, top 15 program, there were very few atmospheres in college football, like a Thursday night or Saturday night in Blacksburg, Virginia. Incredible fan base, incredible passion. So they don't lack for it there. Um, North Carolina has had stretches where they've had really good environments. They've got really good fan support. These places are not without fan interest and passion. Here's the problem. The ACC is not in this bubble. You mentioned we're comparing them to the Big Ten, to the SEC. They compete in a college football world. So Virginia Tech, take modern-day Virginia Tech or Virginia, take modern-day Florida State, modern-day NC State, modern-day North Carolina, and then compare them to, for example, Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, Ohio State, down south, Alabama, Georgia, Auburn. You know, if you take a middle-of-the-road SEC program right now, which is like Mississippi State, and you take that environment, that level of passion, that level of commitment, and you drop it in the ACC, Mississippi State would quickly be an upper-tier ACC team. That's what you're talking about. So what does it take, or what do they lack? I don't think that they lack, as in having an empty barrel, in any one of these any one of these facets you mentioned, whether it be facilities or fan passion or investment, deep tradition and history, they don't lack totally in any of those areas. It's just that they don't collectively measure up to the big boys in any of those areas either. So here's what has to happen. What has to happen is what's happening now. You have to get a giant in the conference, and that's Clemson. So Clemson, is, they used to play the underdog. Well, now they are Goliath, and they're gonna have to play that role. Because you've got to have a bar. If, if people aren't going to collectively take it upon themselves, then you've got to have someone set the bar. And Clemson has set it extremely high. And you give people only two options. You can either get beat on for the rest of your life, or you can do something you've never done before. Because that's what it takes right now to compete in the ACC. It takes a lot of these programs doing things and being all in to a level they haven't been before. You're going to get it somewhere. A lot of people are going to fall short, but you're going to get it from somewhere. It may be the likely areas. It may be that Miami or Florida State or, like we said, Virginia Tech get their act together. Or it may be that Mac Brown and North Carolina do it. And as a result, you see something from North Carolina football, not that you haven't seen in a generation, maybe that you've never seen before, period. And trust me, look, I, I've got every finger crossed that I could possibly cross. That happens. All right, so I told you we talked to Mario Cristobal a few days ago, and we had him go really in-depth on a lot of things, and I thought, hey, I'm going to be on vacation Thursday. This will be perfect. This is not typically an interview show because I don't think that typically you're interested in that sort of thing long form, and if you are, you know where to go find that. However, since we're going to do it here, as I told you, I'm going to ask the questions that you are interested in, I'm going to try and give you two things with every question that we ask, information and access. I'm going to pull back the curtain or have someone pull back the curtain on college football as much as we can. And believe me, Mario Cristobal is about to do that for you. So let's go to our interview with the head coach at Oregon, and we'll wrap it up on the other side. Roll it, Colin. And Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal does join us. And coach, you've done probably a lot of interviews. I know you've got conference calls. You talked about coronavirus, when you may come back, and all that stuff's public record. So really what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk to you just about football. 
And I want to start with you. Let's go back to January 1st. I know good and well you remember where you were on New Year's Day. I had covered the Citrus Bowl, Bama, Michigan. I'm driving back up I-75, and we're watching the Rose Bowl in the car. And it's tight. It's back and forth. You guys take the lead over Wisconsin. You win the Rose Bowl. It's 28-27 final. There goes the green Gatorade all over you. I mean, I know what I saw on TV, on that little screen, on that phone in my car, but tell me from your perspective, second year in, you just won the Rose Bowl at Oregon. What was that entire experience like? Well, it, it was complete and utter validation for the players, your entire organization buying into a very demanding blueprint, one that was going to take everything that everyone had on a daily basis for two years and one that really we're still in progress. We're still building upon that. But, you know, I, and I told the players a long time ago when I was first um, hired, when I had the privilege and honor to be selected to be the head coach at Oregon, I said, you know, I know some people are motivated to buy rings and all that other stuff. And, you know, you see, I never wear them. I, I have my $30 wedding band, which that's all I use. But I want to see you guys dancing in confetti. That's what I want to see. I want to see all you big, crazy, just hard work and sweaty dudes just dancing in confetti. Because when you achieve something like that through the hard work we did, it's a game changer for the rest of your life. And when that was accomplished, Honestly, I mean, it was super enjoyable. I mean, we're running around. You saw all the hugs. You saw all the tears. It was absolutely awesome. But it also marks the beginning of what we feel is going to be a, a consistent march towards an elite-level program. So here's the thing. I mean, I could go back in history, and I could find an example of someone who had a firework go off year one, year two, year three, which is early in your tenure, and it just served as a rocket ship, and they went on to be a perennial contender. But then you can find other programs that came to that fork in the road and they rested on their laurels and they felt like they had arrived and they go down this path where 10 years later, people are looking back saying, we did this in year two. Like, how did we never replicate that success? So you've coached under Nick Saban. I mean, you guys have won championships and you've seen what he's like five minutes later. So now you're a head coach at a major program. How do you make sure you calibrate everyone's focus and get things back on what they need to be? to sustain success? Well, you mentioned Coach Saban. He was a phenomenal mentor. Learned so much under him. I had the great fortune of playing for Jimmy Johnson and Dennis Erickson. Um, you're around guys like Greg Schiano. There's a lot of just really regimented, competitive guys that had some awesome blueprints. And I remember my last stop before coming to Oregon was with Coach Saban. And I remember the relentless just approach to fighting human nature and fighting complacency. And you said it perfectly. Within five minutes, I think you overestimated. I think within three minutes, it was on to the next. You know, I, I want to make sure that the seniors and the coaches, the staff, uh, everyone in the organization knew how much I appreciated, we appreciated what they did to make it a reality. Uh, I really, that's super important because this is not an eye operation. This is a collective effort. And as soon as that was done, uh, on the march back to the hotel where family was waiting, family had to wait because we know we had to get on the phone with some of our commitments and some of our potential signees or, or next class recruits. And the entire thought was, man, this is awesome, but we could have done even better. And we want to stay in that mindset. We want to stay with that process all the time. There's no sense of being content. There's no sense of relaxation at all you know we we're a hungry humble and driven operation and we have miles to go to be exactly where we want to be 
And but we've come miles as well because a couple of years ago we were getting beat 38 to three and stuff of that nature. It's not happening anymore, you know. And uh, we're proud of it, but we know that we still got to get better. Take me into the postseason sort of quality control evaluation process when you self scout and you take a really really stripped down look at everything you were in the 2019 season. Fans look at a Rose Bowl, they say that's almost as close to perfect as we can get. You look at it and you can see all the things that you could have done better. So maybe not from a micro perspective, but more a macro perspective, what are the areas that you looked at and said, it was good, but if we could have done this, it's good, but in the future, we got to do this. What are those areas for your program? Oh, it's a great question. I think right away, strength and conditioning stands out. The advances that have been made, you know, upon arrival, there was a lot of work to be done. Now we're, we're the more physical bunch more times than not, and that's the goal all the time. Our disciplinary standards have certainly increased, minus a couple of games where we got a little bit, you know, a little bit, I would say, uh, overzealous and, and things got uh, a little bit testy. Our guys did a great job playing with great discipline, toughness, and executed really, really well. When you look at our, um, our play up front in the trenches, really set the tone for a lot of games. We prevented explosive plays. We made more explosive plays. We controlled and stopped the run better. We ran the ball better. Both those could still significantly improve. We know that. Um, in the passing game, we want to improve the ability to make explosive plays. We had some. We made some. Uh, we, we have the personnel to do that. We had it last year, and we made some progress. We got to do more. I mean, nowadays, games are won and lost with how many explosive plays you can make and defend, how you do on third down, what to do with the middle eight, and, of course, the turnovers. And in the turnover department, we were really, really good. I think second or third in the country in that margin. We've got to improve that as well. We need to be first, right? If we don't put the ball on the ground one or two times, our record might be even better. We might be in the playoffs. Those things really stand out um, to us. I think also the, uh, the level of leadership was the most important, the most prominent thing on the table last year and is, and is this year as well. We will go as far as the ownership in the locker room and the leadership of our football team. Those guys understood what it was to put a foot in the ground and say enough is enough. We are going to take that next step as a program and set the standard for the years to come. So all those things stand out, but I could keep you here for about 22 hours with more stuff. Feel no, uh, feel no pressure to ever shut up when you're around us, I can assure you. Hey, you guys, I mean, I, I'm standing down in Mississippi a few months ago watching Joe Moorhead be a head coach at Mississippi State. I'm watching Brian McClendon as an offensive coordinator at South Carolina and I don't know that people realize it because there's always so much going on, but both of those guys are on your staff now. You guys got Moorhead as your offensive coordinator up there. McClendon comes along as well. Uh, the, first off, these very good football minds. I mean, Joe Moorhead's record speaks for itself at Penn State before he even got to Mississippi State. McClendon, I look back, he's been one of our former 24-7 sports national recruiters of the year. That's a title that you brought home too. I mean, tell me a little bit about how much that means from a football standpoint and also – you guys recruit nationally, so from a recruiting standpoint as well. Well, it starts with the fact that they were both incredible human beings. And they're, to us, they're five-star recruits, right? I mean, you've got to have the best coaches in the country to be able to develop your guys, to build the right type of trust and relationships. And when you analyze the landscape of where we are on the West Coast, we want to make sure that we brought in a receivers coach, who, by the way, is serving as a pass game coordinator also. I mean, he's, Brian is brilliant. Brian is brilliant, and he is, uh, he, he's such a, a personable, just talented, uh, high-care factor guy. It's, it's a home run. I mean, we're blessed to have him. 
but we wanted to study, okay, where can we take the next step as it relates to our footprint at that position? Well, let's find the best of the best. Let's find a guy that's played it at the highest level, that's coached at the highest level and has developed players not only at the college level, but the NFL and that has an impeccable track record. And we felt that would be the major reason that we can take that next step in wide receiver recruiting and offensive recruiting. Ryan is uh, that and more. And then Coach Moorhead was um, the moment. That, and again, he's such a great track record, right, with his career. I've been a big fan of what he's done. I've studied Penn State, and I've studied Fordham even before coming across Coach Moorhead. And when things went down the way they did at Mississippi State, um, saw it as an opportunity to reach out um, and did not want to also be overbearing during a difficult time. But Coach was gracious enough to answer the phone. And in speaking to him within five minutes, I was like, if, if he matches, this, his conversation matches his being, what he is as a human being, his DNA, uh, this is a must-get, a must-have here at Oregon. And um, he has done nothing but exceed expectations as a person, as a coach, a developer of talent. His ability to develop the quarterback, his quarterback coaching acumen off the charts. And what do we need? We need another guy at that position, at the coordinator position, that can elevate quarterback play and gain the trust of the top quarterbacks in the country. Just like Coach McClendon gained the trust of the best receivers in the country from a recruiting standpoint, but even more importantly, our, our most important recruits, the one in-house, the ones in-house. Our current players on our roster, right? At quarterback, at wide receiver, and the team as a whole, because those guys do have a platform. We provide platform for our coaches to grow and address the team. And both those guys are guys that instantly gain trust, instant credibility, um, not because of what they've done, but the moment they walk in, their presence, the way they teach, the way they communicate, and the effort they put into developing those guys. Uh, I love them. I love our staff. They are the reason why we're progressing at the rate we're progressing. Pretty awesome stuff. Uh, Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal joining us. Let me ask you a question that I don't really hear talked about much. There are coaches that go all over the place every year. There's overturn on your roster virtually every year. But all we ever read is a headline that, for instance, Mario Cristobal in Oregon, they've hired Joe Moorhead as new offensive coordinator. But you never get to be a fly on the wall in the interview process, probably because it's in the weeds and 99% of us wouldn't understand what's being said. But yet it's still fascinating. Like, I don't know calculus, but I watch calculus get taught and it spins my head, but I'm still fascinated by it. When you're interviewing someone, for a role like offensive coordinator, this is going to directly impact several games for you next year, one way or the other. What is an example or are some examples of really specific questions you ask and really specific things that you have a guy get into from the granular football level? I'd like to credit um, Coach Mangini with the New York Jets, who obviously worked for Coach Belichick back in the day. And you're looking at me going, how does this even come into the conversation? It comes into the conversation because in 2005 and six, uh, I was offered an interview opportunity with the New York Jets as a tight ends coach. And uh, I went up thinking this will be, you know, an hour or so or whatnot, and you know, just share information, talk a little ball. And, you know, that was an eight, nine hour process where we talked football, but we demonstrated football. We scouted tape, tape of the team and the players that I coach, and then the team and the players that I maybe would have an opportunity to coach. I was given scouting film and asked to evaluate in detail, balance, body control, acceleration, deceleration, toughness, initial body, quickness, you name it, uh, 
hips, uh, body stiffness, uh, toughness, motor, I was asked to demonstrate um, the introduction of a concept in front of an entire room full of coaches and administrators. I was asked to um, sit in on a meeting and digest a concept and then be able to regurgitate it. Uh, I was asked to stand up and demonstrate the technique and fundamentals as it related to a block, a release, an escape, um, catching a football, high pointing a football, a red zone ball uh, versus, you know, a, um, a contested, you know, tight slant ball. It was an, a relentless process. So I'm sorry to, you know, divert into that, but that's what led to our process, which um, we, we first used at FIU. Where we were able to hire really great coordinators like, um, like Scott Satterfield, you know, who ended up being a member of our staff back in the day. So when we bring in somebody, uh, it's, it's the ultimate, uh, I would say, litmus test in terms of character, knowledge, presence. We, uh, we do it first as an entire organization, have everybody sit in because we want everybody to get a feel because wherever we hire, right, can determine the fortunes of the entire organization. So I do want people to have a feel. And I trust a lot of people to come with me. I don't want people in our organization to be afraid to give me information on how they feel about things. But whatever is presented by that coordinator has to match the film that they're talking about, right? Because it's easy to talk about, well, you know, hey, we, you know, I believe in explosive plays and, and going tempo and making sure that we run by people. Okay, well, this clip of tape shows it's 42 to nothing in the third quarter. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you don't want. And when you, start, uh, when you start putting someone and letting them present their craft, number one, is you want to see how well do they own their craft. Does that information, does the way he teaches, does it just roll off his tongue naturally, right? Uh, you also want to gauge their presence. You know, ask them to teach as if you're a, a freshman. I'm a freshman. You teach me. I don't know, you know, anything from Adam's house cap to say Coach Saban's old line, right? And have them teach and go into it. And then once you get into it and they feel comfortable, then start throwing issues at them and have them respond, well, all right, what do they bring corner fire? You know, you're running into an unblocked corner, yet you don't have something attached on the backside to get rid of the football. How do you deal with that? And let them get into the way they, you know, resolve things because it's great if they own their, their craft, but let's see them handle sudden change, so to speak, right? Let's see them handle adversity. Let's see them make an adjustment. And are they going to get caught up and maybe stutter into it and try to talk their way around it? Or do they have a solution on the spot where they can roll with it? Um, certainly want them around everybody in the building, uh, the recruiting staff, the operations staff, academic staff, want to share thoughts on academics, uh, philosophies on dealing with young men and their families. How it, it's, we just treat everybody that comes in the building, whether it's an intern, someone that's voluntarily working for us, coordinator, it's, it's a really rigorous process because every hire matters. Every single hire matters. And, um, you know, we don't claim to be, you know, uh, the all people, but we work extremely hard at it. And we take a great amount of pride in the fact that we know for a fact we have the best people in the industry. If I were to take a pie chart, and here is Coach Cristobal's pie chart. These are the maximum hours in a day that he has. If you're a position coach, a vast majority of your time is spent with straight up football related activities. When you're a head coach, you've got so much more on your plate. You've done it at a couple of stops now, and you're doing it right now at one of the elite programs in America. So you're talking about hires and how important it is. Well, that's because you got other things on your plate. You got to deal with all sorts of 
in some cases, all sorts of things that people don't even know exist. So how many hours in your day can you spend as a head coach on football specific activities? And then how much extra is there that comes with the responsibility of being a head coach? Wow. Well, that, that pie chart is, uh, goes a little bit here and there, depending on the type of day, but it's one thing that's consistent. You have to start your day. You have to start your day at 4.30, 4.45. And, uh, and you don't want to put a cap on it. You know, it goes. And I don't say that, uh, you know, like pound your chest, say, oh, I'm up so early, I work hard. I think, I really believe all coaches do that. Um, I, you have to. There's just not enough hours in the day to accomplish everything. But, wow, well, all of it's important. You know, that's, football is three parts, right? In terms of the performance part, you have talent acquisition is one third. You have player development is the other. And then, of course, personnel usage. So your day has to be broken up, taking all those things into consideration. And one thing I did learn at my last stop were, especially during this time of year where you have to invest a ton of time in, and I had never done it before, was the amount of opponent scouting and preliminary game plans that were put together uh, during this time of year. While, and, and this part we have been limited in this year, is the ability to go visit places and always do everything possible to stay on the cutting edge. And, and the reason I say that is because it's I, I can't digest asking a player to, hey, this offseason, you've got to do this to get better. You've got to increase your, your acceleration. You've got to increase your ability to come out of your hips, you know, and get separation, shed the blockers, and make tackles. I can't – I just can't digest asking that of a player and yet not doing the same with our staff. Hey, we've got to go find out better ways – to cover kicks. We've got to find better ways to have our frontline guys and our kickoff return team, you know, get to their landmarks, flip their hips and go low to high and execute their blocks. Sometimes it's a, it's a coaching blur. Maybe it's a sound bite, right? Cause we like to coach in sound bites. I don't, I don't like running tempo and then trying to give a dissertation to a player that's trying to get a signal, trying to digest the signal, get lined up and play. Right. You know, this, everything is fast. So we could coach even more off of tape where you still have seven to 10 seconds to coach in between each play. And you've got to come off the field in a complete ladder. Okay. Now I know I didn't answer the question, but how's the day broken up? It's, it's wake up and it's, um, you gotta, you gotta have Cuban coffee ready, like right away. I mean, that's the key to the whole thing. And, and I've taught both my eight year old and my 10 year old how to make it. So, um, the other day they want to find out, is this really good for you to drink this? <laughs> yeah, it tastes really good, but I was raised on it. So it's no problem. I guess I'll give it to you just like this. Yeah, let's let's say it's recruiting in the morning. You go from that time till seven where you're meeting with your staff, um, where you quickly go to offense and defensive organization, and that'll roll till 8.39 when you meet with the players. And then you're practicing on the field from 10 to, you know, 12. We actually move everything up an hour for all this, but it gives you an idea. Um, you got to make sure your coaches work out. Let them stay in shape. You know, let them... Our coaches got to be able to run. They've got to be able to demonstrate technique. They've got to be active. Uh, there is no walking on the field. The horn sounds, everybody's sprinting everywhere. And to make that happen, it is, it is really my duty to make sure those guys have an opportunity to take care of their bodies, be healthy, and, and to lead by example. There's, there's nothing worse. Remember that back in the day, I used to play, man, there was that one coach that was enormous and had a big whistle hanging out his mouth and just blowing it and just, hey, run here, run there. We, we can't be that. There's nothing against that. You know, did you have one of those? Well, I've just, I've, I've, yeah, I've had them, but I've also observed it. I mean, I've, not to mention names, of course, but I've always wondered if I'm a player, if I'm a sophomore, 
who's starting for Oregon. And Mario Cristobal's 375, but he's yelling at me for not hitting my goal weight. Like, how seriously am I about to take him? But I, let me ask you, how popular is that? Like, how, how prevalent is that that coaching staffs are allotted time to work out? Is that pretty popular from what you've experienced? Um, we've always done it. And we try to make it fun and challenging. And we talk a little smack to each other. We all played on some pretty edgy teams back in the day. So we get after it. And it's, I think it's a good example for our players as well, that they see that the coaches are committed to this. But we make sure that they, 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 I mean, as a player, what did you trust? You trusted someone that was invested and that can truly make you better. And then the care factor was off the charts because you were there day or night regardless of football. So we go by that. I mean, it's as simple as, you know, do everything and treat everyone as if you're dealing with your very own son. Because you're going to go all out, right? I'm looking up and down from last year to this year. You can't talk specifics about this year, I know. But I'm looking at the nature of Oregon recruiting. And it seems like a generation ago, it was very regional in terms of an operation. Chip Kelly came in. They kind of developed that national brand. Nike does a lot to help with that. You're there a decade after that. And I was talking on one of our shows the other night. It seems like a lot of the style in the Pac-12 changed because of what Coach Kelly did at Oregon. And now you guys have come in, and immediately the physicality jumps out. And you're recruiting a roster, obviously, to fully implement the style that you want to play with. But you're doing it on a much more national level than I've ever remembered seeing Oregon do it. I was talking to you before we started. kid from Lynette, Alabama that I used to cover all the time growing up. Triquez Bridges when I'm coming up in the business he's playing safety there and five other positions at Lynette and you guys convince him come to Oregon and that's not all that uncommon these days how have you guys done that and how are you received nationally in recruiting especially going into an area that you know well the southeast where there are already a ton of good options how do you tell a kid how do you convince them we got a good option up here too why don't you come check this out well uh, recruiting in general is challenging, uh, no matter where you are, what label or, or logo is on your shirt. So we are just blessed that the Oregon, the brand itself is strong. I mean, when, when it comes into a school, it gives us an opportunity right away to be in one of the top, as one of the top choices for every prospect that we come across. But I think what parents and players uh, quickly realize when they set foot on campus is that the entire organization, the resources, the facilities, everything, it is geared for elite student athletes. It is one of a kind. Um, Phil Knight certainly has been um, an, just awesome. That's all you can say. Completely committed to, um, and our administration uh, is completely committed to the student athlete experience and the development of the student athlete. So I think at first, sometimes when you go east, they say, well, it's kind of far. And when they get there, they realize, okay, this is a kind of far that's worth taking a trip to and becoming a part of because of what it provides. It's so difficult not to segue into how broad um, this whole track, this whole path is to getting to where we are while everybody clearly understanding that we're not where we want to be. Yet. You know, we got, we got some, some work to do, but I hope that kind of sideways answered your question. No, that's what you're here for. Less of me, more of you. That's how, uh, that's how an interview is supposed to go. Here is, so you just talked about the big picture and when you're recruiting kids and that process starts two plus years before pen hits paper sometimes, if not most of the time. But take me up to the two weeks, one week, 72 hours, 24 hours leading up to signing day. Things get really crazy. 
And there are all sorts of rumors from, from our perspective, there are all sorts of rumors that fly around and you get whispers and you get parts of stories, but yet you're at the epicenter. So you see it all and you're fielding all this stuff. What is it like trying to hold on to or make sure you lock down the best class possible? What all sorts of things are happening that we don't get to see? That's when the test comes, right? And we like to think of signing day as a formality. If we've done our job the right way, relationships are strong. You know, signing day is not decision day. Signing day is just the celebration. It's, you know, it's the ceremony for 90% of the guys that are coming in your class. There's always going to be that 10%, maybe less, sometimes more that still have uh, some indecision in their gut, that still are trying to figure things out. Think about it. You may have a commitment that you've locked into and you've told another 10, 12 guys, sorry, we already filled up at that spot. Well, if that doesn't stick, you're not going to plan B or C. You know, your things take a dip, you know, from a selection process. Doesn't mean it's right or wrong, or better or worse, but it certainly takes your process off track. So, yeah, that's uh, that can be a little bit stressful. I, I tell you one thing, over the last couple of years, it's just gotten better and better here where the numbers have been fewer. Um, and far between and it's got to be that way to be a, an elite program you know get it it can happen but I think it's getting less and less as it was before there's um NFL Network had a special a while back about that 90 I think it's the 94 Cleveland Brown staff where it was Belichick and Nick Saban was the defensive coordinator there but they had so many guys that were going to go on to become future head coaches NFL level college level and so I was thinking the other day, I was talking about the 2015 Alabama team. And I remembered they had a loaded coaching staff. But then I Wikipedia it about five minutes before we started talking. You know, the head coach is Nick Saban. That's a staff that had Lane Kiffin as the offensive coordinator, who's now a head coach. You got Kirby Smart, current head coach at Georgia. You've got you, you got Mario Cristobal is now the current head coach at Oregon. Billy Napier was the wide receivers coach there. He's down at Louisiana. Mel Tucker, is now at Miss, uh, Michigan State. That staff, I don't know if people realize it because it's so recent, but that could be a staff that we look at another 10 years down the road as the newer version of that 03 LSU 94 Cleveland Brown staff. How was that to be a part of? Oh, that was, I thought the best part about that was the competitiveness of the staff. You know, how practice, how recruiting, everything was all right, you know. Let's go. We're going to practice. This is inside run. We're going to knock you back. Now we're going to shut you down. You know, we're going to one-on-one -on -one, uh, wide receivers versus DBs. It looked like game day. It really did. It uh, was guys just refusing to be beat. Coaches refusing to be outworked. Same thing for the recruiting trail. You know, everybody, no, no, I, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I've got the top guy. I think this guy's better for the program because of this and that. And the other guy going, well, I think this guy's better. Um, and Coach Saban, I put together just a dynamic staff and a great strength staff, you know, as well. You know, Coach Scott Cochran was really um, a tremendous glue to the whole thing. Burton Burns, who's now with the New York Giants as a running back coach. Bobby Willems was with us here. I mean, you're looking at some experience, work ethic, demeanor. Um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. I, I have, I have in my office, I have 14 spiral notebooks filled out front to back of daily notes of my four years there. And that year specifically has a large volume of those because of the circumstances, uh, tough decisions, 
uh, regimentation as it related to bowls, uh, championship games, um, injuries. I mean, off-season work, dealing with some of the other issues that come up in college football, dealing with agents, right, when you have so many players that are going to be uh, selected or at least they're going to be pursued, you know, as juniors. It's just uh, fighting complacency, right, fighting um, – overcoming a loss early that year. I'll never forget, you know, we talked about how not even dead yet, and they've already, they've already buried us. They've already put dirt over us, you know, and I, uh, I, I can't be uh, express how thankful I was, I am, for that experience. That certainly, that changes you. When you're able to go through something like that and come out on the other side, you know, we stay in touch. We, we have some pretty competitive uh, battles now that go on between all of us and but at least we all exchange information as it relates to regiment structure and whatnot. So awesome, awesome, awesome experience. Really good stuff. Uh, to, to wrap us up here, I want to ask you specifically about one player on your roster who is probably the most talked about player. And this has got to make you smile ear to ear because your most talked about player is an offensive lineman, which rarely happens. I think you would argue, and I would probably agree it should happen more often, but it rarely happens these days. But Penny Sewell is a guy who is in, legitimate conversation for a top overall draft pick this upcoming year and he's been a model citizen I've heard you talk about him before what kind of traits do you have to possess to play the position he plays at the level he plays it at well those traits begin in the household that he was born and raised in and Gabe and Arlene Sewell um you won't find better parents I mean you're looking at a super tight family does tremendous amount of powerful, impactful love in that household, but also discipline and toughness, right? Commitment to doing things the right way. And Panay, Panay is, he's explosive, he's athletic, incredible flexibility. Um, what, what flies off the charts with all that is his incredible football IQ, his awareness as to understanding the game from what the guy beside him is doing to what the tight end is doing. I'm pretty sure he could drop what the receivers are doing. He knows exactly what the quarterbacks and the running backs are doing. So he is able to play just carefree. And he has a natural inclination to be a very physical player. I mean, he enjoys, loves, um, craves contact and physicality and dominating opponents. And when you combine all that with the recoverability he has, I mean, he can get himself in and out of bad body positions, a pileup that's got a leg trapped while he gets stuck and an edge rusher is coming around the corner where he can get out of it, spin around and still get hands on him running by the quarterback is something that is rare. It's generational. And uh, his heart and his um, commitment to his teammates is even more impressive than that, even a better person than he is a player. But the amount of power and athleticism, the combination with those two things with the mindset and the football IQ, it is unique. And I really think as a 19-year-old Outland Trophy winner, okay, youngest ever, he's just getting started. I mean, he really is just getting started. I mean, he's upset with me because we threw him a pass where he was double covered in the Pac-12 championship game, but it's not my fault. You know, we <laughs> they changed their coverage scheme and we probably should have saved it, but they – he caught his pass, you know. <laughs> so uh, going back to that quarterback position, I think a lot of outsiders who aren't day-to-day -day fans of the Oregon Ducks, all they know is, well, they had Justin Herbert, and he just went in the NFL draft, and I'm drawing a blank now as to what their depth chart looks like at quarterback. So if I live in Moline, Illinois, and I'm just a casual fan, and I turn on Oregon week one, week two, 
What am I looking at at quarterback, and how do you guys feel about where you are? Well, you know, we only had four days of spring practice, and uh, you know, like everybody else, we're all going through it. So we're, it's not unique to us that we're going through this stuff. But Tyler Shuck left the season as the the front runner for the starting job, and he entered spring ball and less spring ball as the current starter. Now, that does not mean we're not going to implement competition. There is going to be competition. All those young players are really good players. You know, Cale Milne's a, a really good player. You know, Jay Butterfield is a really good player. Um, you know, uh, Robbie Ashford coming in from Alabama, a really good player. Okay, Anthony Brown is a really good player. So we're going to promote competition. Um, and we felt like with all the rooms, all the rooms in our, in our building, all the positions, that that was one that because it's going to be a, a first-time starter, that one needed the most competition. So we're going to make sure that happens. But you're looking at, uh, you know, I'll start with Tyler. Tyler's just a guy that's, he's explosive. He's smart. He is, uh, got tremendous command of the offense and he can make every throw and he's got great feet. Those that are practice will tell you, you know, we end every Thursday, every Wednesday with two minute drill. And those last five or six practices of 2019, it was obvious that that guy was going to be a great football player for us. And his, um, the moments he got to, jump in there against Nevada and USC, he proved that he's ready, you know, but so are the other guys. So we're looking forward to that. And um, I know sometimes coaches shy away from quarterback questions. I don't at all. It's got to be just like every other position. You've got to create competition. You've got to let those guys get after it. And you've got to do a great job coaching everyone around them to make sure that the supporting cast is held just as accountable as quarterback is. Mario Cristobal, Oregon head coach. Man, we really, really appreciate it. Appreciate you actually checking out the show every now and then. And I hope this is not the last time that we talk before the season, brother. Man, it's an honor to be on the show. Truly uh, humbling. It really is. So I appreciate you. Uh, be safe. Looking forward to being back any single time that you need us. And looking forward to hopefully having you over here in Eugene, Oregon, so you can check out the Ducks live in person. You got it, brother. Appreciate it. All right, man. Yeah, pretty in-depth, huh? Really, really good stuff there from Mario Cristobal. We really appreciate him coming on. Um, fascinating. You know, I was sitting actually at this table now when we recorded that interview. I was at the same spot. And I, that's, that was my posture. I just kind of sat there like this. Since we weren't on that split-screen format, you couldn't see me when he was talking. And I just kind of, wow, because I learned as much, if not more, than you did there. So when we do interviews, in the very rare instances that we do them, that's how they are. And, hey, a lot, of, a lot of people in the college football industry watch this program. Mario is the one who reached out to us last week when he was watching the show. So I'm open to that now. And if we have to create new segments for it, bonus content, I'm open to it. But I know a lot of coaches really love that kind of format. They love being asked those kind of questions, and they love to take a deeper dive. It's what they're doing all day anyway. It's just that they're rarely put in a position – where that's the format that calls for it. Well, this is the format that calls for it. So any of you guys who are interested in that, at Late Kick Josh on Twitter, open those DMs. You know how to get in touch with me. Uh, really good show. I will be back live in the studio Sunday night. A reminder, uh, please subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel if you haven't already. I mean, if you're watching right now, that's where you are. We've done excellent numbers there. I mean, uh, surpassed a lot of expectation the first few months that we've done that here. And also the Late Kick podcast. You can find it anywhere you download your podcast. We really appreciate five-star reviews and those written reviews. Oh, boy, do we appreciate that. And management appreciates it. And if management loves it, then we love it. So 
Let's just all do something we love. You guys have a great weekend. We'll be back here Sunday night. I'm Josh Pate. For Colin, for Aaron, for Tani, have a great weekend. God bless.